0: at LuckyLandslots.com.
1: Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Hillary Clinton and her campaign of 2008 started the birther controversy. I finished it. I finished it. You know what I mean. President Barack Obama was born in the United States, period. People have birth certificates. He doesn't have a birth certificate. Now, Donald, Donald, you're, you're beginning to sound a little ridiculous. I think you sound ridiculous. Obama was born in the United States, period. F*** <laughs> <laughs> you!
1: Exclamation point!
2: Hello and welcome to Trumpcast the show about the man who used over a quarter of a million dollars from his charity to settle legal claims against his businesses, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. That's from a story in the Washington Post by David Farenthold, who you heard on this show last week. Can Trump do that? No, he can't. It's called self-dealing. It's an apparent violation of tax law, not to mention a total violation of the idea of charitable giving. Anyway, my world brightened a little bit on Saturday when the New York Times called Donald Trump a liar. Right there on the front page, lead story, A1, in the headline. Boom. Liar. Liar. The story was about the ridiculous deceit Trump has been peddling about Barack Obama's birth certificate since 2011 and the lies he's still telling about it, even though he has now conceded that Obama's birth certificate isn't a fake. To me, Just the use of that one honest descriptive word, lies, cut right through the crap. So much of this campaign has been about the media enabling Trump, indulging Trump, allowing itself to be manipulated by Trump. There's been so much false equivalence and grading on a curve. And here was the most important news organization in the world finally calling bullshit on him. Thank you, New York Times, for telling it like it is. My guest today, Michael Barbaro, wrote that New York Times story. I'll be back with him right after we do the tweets.
0: Crooked Hillary Clinton wants to take your Second Amendment rights away. Will guns be taken from her heavily armed Secret Service detail? Uh, maybe not. Never met, but never liked dopey Robert Gates. Look at the mess the U.S. is in always speaks badly of his many bosses including Obama. CNN just doesn't get it and that's why their ratings are so low and getting worse. Boring anti-Trump panelists, mostly losers in life. Crazy Maureen Dowd, the wacky columnist for the failing New York Times, pretends she knows me well. Wrong. My lawyers want to sue the failing New York Times so badly for irresponsible intent. I said no, for now. But they are watching. Really disgusting. Do people notice that Hillary is copying my airplane rallies? She puts the plane behind her like I've been doing from the beginning. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.
2: My guest today is Michael Barbaro. He's a national political reporter at The New York Times, and he's the host of The Run-Up, a a twice-a-week podcast about the campaign from The New York Times. Michael, thanks for joining me on the show.
1: It's my pleasure, Jacob.
2: So on Saturday, I picked up The New York Times and saw the following A1 headline, Donald Trump clung to birther lie for years and still isn't apologetic. That was over your story. And I thought, oh, my God, The New York Times in the lead story, in a one is calling Donald Trump a liar.
1: Yeah, we went there.
2: <laughs> you went there, and is it? Am I right to think that it hasn't happened before in the New York Times? I mean, the New York Times has not used that term that I've seen in a news story to describe Donald Trump, and I'm not sure they've used it to describe anyone else in a headline.
1: It was unusual. I was really impressed with the placement. Of myself, I mean, every journalist loves to have that particular real estate in the New York Times, those top, you know, top right-hand column. But I think in some ways, this was a long time coming. And in some ways, it was completely unique and sui generis to this story. And so let me explain that. Anyone who covers Trump knows that he has this very elastic relationship with the truth. That's not to say that Hillary Clinton has, has not fibbed. It's just to say there's, an, or, there's a difference in order of magnitude. And in the case of birtherism, That morning, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Um, I was on Twitter, which we often think of as a massive distraction, and I tweeted out the question, how should the media handle this? He's going to have an announcement at a hotel, because he clearly wants publicity, in which he's promised he's going to make a major declaration about something about which he has been deceptive for a very long time. There's just no debate about the president's place of birth. And when I wrote that tweet, I got a lot of interesting feedback and the wisdom of crowds is often not so wise. But in this case, some of the feedback was very forcefully people saying that the words that I used and that we used to describe these moments matters, and w- what word we used to describe the way he's handled birtherism matters. And not saying that overly influenced the rest of the day, but when I got into the office and we started to talk about this story, and I said I thought there was an important piece of analysis and a public service to be completed on this topic a lot of that stuff was kind of ringing in my head. And as we started to write, as I started to write that news analysis, the word lie came into my head and we began to talk about whether it was the right word to use. And I have to say, there wasn't a long drawn out debate about it. It felt right to a lot of us for, for the simple reason that a lie is different from you know the spin and the exaggerations and all of the normal back and forth between candidates that's so common in politics. It's about a deliberate attempt to deceive. And in this case, I don't think there's debate about that. The length of what Donald Trump was doing, it, the abundant fact checkable evidence to the contrary made it a case where we felt comfortable using the word lie.
2: It's obviously more comfortable to use euphemisms. uh, Distortion, misleading, uh, falsehood. Falsehood. Yeah. I've used them all. (laughs) You've used them all. But what lie does is it ascribes intentionality to the deception, which I think is absolutely right here. But, you know, this is, I mean, I imagine the the New York Times editors sitting around the boardroom having a serious debate about whether they're going to do this. I mean, you say that you kind of came in and did this and editors agreed, but what what is the process like when the New York Times takes a step like this?
1: So I have to confess that at a certain level, the process goes on unseen to me, right? I don't get to be in all the meetings. I do know that the discussion did reach relatively high levels, as you can imagine it would, about any story that's going to lead the paper, especially when it's a news analysis, especially when we use a word like this. So I can't tell you exactly what the debate was. I can just tell you that there was a, there was a high degree of comfort in, in publishing the news analysis, uh, you know, and publishing it on the front page and using that word. But, but I want to go back to your really, really important point because I think as we move forward in this campaign, one of the great debates both at the New York Times and elsewhere will be now that we've used this word, how will we use it in the future? Will we use it in the future? Will we apply it to both sides? And I think the, Key question about this particular word is intentionality and, and in particular, a malicious intent. So when you're in a debate and you screw up a fact and everyone sort of knows you screwed up the fact, but in the past you've got it right, that doesn't sound like a lie to me. And there's some gray areas too, but, but, but a five year campaign of deception that started, by the way, in 2011, which was three years after Barack Obama released his short form birth certificate, means that there's just no truth to it. And so they're, okay, there's no truth the first time when you do it. There's no truth the second time. There's no truth the third time. But what if you do it for five long years? And then even after that, you kind of keep doing it with your non-answers to the question. Then that's, that's a lie. I just don't see any way around it. And, and yes, it was a little liberating to use that word in this case, because we hadn't used it in the past. But But in some ways, I don't think people should look at it as so revolutionary.
2: Michael, what's been the reaction? What's been the the negative reaction, presumably from Trump and Trump supporters? And have others followed where you have now led?
1: Well, Jacob, I I think our story went up around maybe noon or 1230 on Friday. I don't know if we were first. We were probably among the first, and we used that word lie. And we did see other news organizations use that word later. They may have come to the exact same conclusion on on their own because the circumstances of this case are so unique. But it does feel like what happened on Friday, what Donald Trump did, and the way the press viewed it was... And I, and I hate overusing this word, so I definitely don't want to be careless with it, a kind of turning point in the way the media views him and its willingness to call uh, balls and fouls and strikes um, in, in terms of fact-checking and truth-squatting, the language that we're willing to use.
2: I think it was, Michael, because there is a, a media ecology, a, a kind of media food chain. And what the New York Times does... Frees up other news organizations to follow their, their, what may be their own instincts. So, you know, CNN is more likely to tell it like it is if it sees the New York Times going out and doing this, but it kind of needs permission from you, from the, the more respected and establishment press, before it's going to be willing to do that on its own.
1: Yes. I don't know, the, I don't know that we gave them permission. I, I do know that, that it, was, it was a decision that when we made it felt important. Us and deliberate. And I'd be interested in hearing from other news organizations because, you know, take the example of CNN, they've certainly had their own interesting evolution over the past 18 months of this campaign. When this campaign started, there were not parenthetical fact checks in the Chirons, those flashing. You know, bars at the bottom of the screen when Donald Trump spoke. Now, now there are. So I think each news organization has arrived at their own kind of internal turning point or moment where they realized that the traditional levers of fact-checking and the kind of institutional instincts about what to call these things and and what kind of checks and balances to have in place to deal with it. You know, we've learned a lot in this campaign, partly because he's tested the boundaries of the truth so openly
2: and cross them so openly
1: and and yes and absolutely cross them so openly
2: I, I'm sure you saw Trump's tweets that day uh, which I think were not just in reference to your story but in reference to that and some other stories that were in the New York, New York Times and he said you know it was his classic uh, failing New York Times he said my lawyers want to sue them and I just might and these are not his words but essentially he was he was claiming he's holding back his lawyers from suing the New York Times not clear for what uh, and that he might do that after the election anyway
1: well i 'm going to tread lightly because now you 're just discussing the possibility of litigation uh, <laughs> i don 't know what his, i don 't know what his legal intentions are uh, i 've covered Donald Trump since two thousand and eleven when I wrote a story about his real estate empire and his tr- university Times did one of his one of the first big looks at what was going on with students who thought they'd been uh, basically exploited by this educational company, Donald Trump And I had very long animated conversations with his lawyers that included, if it wasn't an open threat, it was a very implicit threat of what would happen if they felt the story was, was unfair. And we were not Sued then. Uh, nor do I anticipate we would be sued in the future.
2: It's an empty threat, except that he. Well, it's important for two reasons. One is it fits into his pattern of essentially not uh, respecting the right of of a free press to to comment on him and cr- and criticize him. And this has come up again and again, and has in the past sometimes resulted in lawsuits on top of a lot of threats of lawsuits. But I think it's it's also important because it just goes right to the heart of the question about his temperament and his how, how prickly and reactive he is to everybody without even thinking through a question like, is there the remotest basis for a lawsuit, which in the case of the New York Times, surely there would not be.
1: Well, or even the more fundamental question of whether someone seeking the highest office in the country, which involves the enforcement of our Constitution and a, res- a healthy respect for it, should be routinely threatening legal action against news organizations f- for very much doing their job and doing it within the walls of the fir- First Amendment.
2: And And Michael, back to lying, do you think we're going to see that word in the New York Times again in reference to Donald Trump during the campaign?
1: I think you could. And I think that we are and will be developing kind of a paradigm for exactly when that word Gets used. It's it's not in the style book. You know, sort of, we can use this word at this moment. We can use, unless I'm missing something. It's it's not, you know, traditionally part of our of our of our lexicon in coverage of a presidential campaign. This is an extraordinary circumstance. This is an extraordinary candidate. We're gonna. I'm sure, and these are decisions editors are gonna make, not not me or a single reporter. You know, it's gonna be a case by case analysis because, as as you suggested, and as we've established in this conversation, the word loses value if it's not used judiciously and carefully. And so that's what we're gonna do.
2: Well, Michael, I was happy to see it and I was proud of you and proud of the paper. Thank you for joining me on the show.
1: I'm grateful you had me, Jacob. That's it for today's
2: show. My producer, Jason DeLeon, has a big vocabulary. He calls Trump a mendacious prevaricator. Slate's executive producer, Steve Lichtai is a little more euphemistic. He says Trump traffics in falsehoods and evasions. Andy Bowers, our chief content officer, loves old fast food commercials. He says it takes two hands to handle Trump's whoppers. John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. He says, liar, liar, lying liar. <laughs> Never mind that. Um, Judy was boring.
1: Hello. Then Judy discovered jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs>